Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to A Storm of Swords, Scraps and Scrolls, Part 9 of 17. We are back for another five chapters full of Storm of Swordsy goodness and interesting stuff. Yep, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've sold you on it already. I am Sir Buckley. I am speaking to you from a blue-skied, although windy, England slash Isle of Faces. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you to all our patrons, to our green folk, to our many, many friends out there. It is a glorious week for the fandom, an active week as uh, hashtag a song of madness takes over thanks to our former guests and our good friends Davos Fingers. We'll talk about that a bit later, but it's wonderful to see so many people out and about on the picket lines protesting about these matchups and the injustices and the victories that are going on. Always just nice to see the passion of the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom out and about. That is what we're here for and it's uh, always fun to see it. But for today, as mentioned, I have another five chapters for you. Some big, big chapters. We'll get to those in a second. We have another pair pick, another one to settle and talk through, and another one for you to think on. And we'll have a halfway shout out and a little talk there. And I have just one announcement for you today before we get started. Well, one and a bit. I'll start with the bit first. A small, not really announcement, more of a tease. I can confirm, I know I've been teasing you with these announcements to come in the last few weeks, but I can confirm that this week I'm recording some new, different episodes that will be appearing soon. Some shorter, more kind of fun-based, light-hearted episodes, and they will be appearing in your in your feed soon enough. I won't go into details just yet, maybe when we're a little further, because they're going to kind of be uh, recorded in a bunch and then released in a bunch, so... Just keep an eye. Keep that eye. I know I've said it for like three weeks straight, but keep an eye on that God's eye horizon because, uh, yeah, extra episodes of other faces. So that's fun for everyone. The main piece of housekeeping before we get going then is last week I was honoured and lucky enough to be invited on to the A Brotherhood Without Manners podcast. And again, I have to salute the name. Uh, if you're unaware, it's, it's a fairly new podcast, but the, the boys have put the work in and they're really streaming far ahead. I really encourage you to go and listen to all of their episodes but you might want to check out the latest one i think it's uh, released for general public today actually or this morning or late last night possibly and the boys were kind enough to invite me on and talk about yeah castle's book but actually this time not just about castle's book i got to talk about me a little bit so it's um a little bit of a switcheroo normally i'm the one asking questions and it was the other way around we spoke about writing of course and getting into this kind of fandom and how all this book came about and all the kind of nuts and bolts. So it's a quick short one. I think it's like 40 minutes long. So go and listen to it quick and uh, divulge. And like I say, please do check out all the other podcasts as they're making their way through their own reread. Much fun is to be had. And yeah, hopefully we can sort something out again. I'm sure they'll come and visit the other faces for us, maybe in one of these new episodes. Hmm. The mystery continues. But yes, very fun. Thank you guys for having me. It was lovely to talk about myself, I guess, even though I'm not very good at it. But yes, that is our, our housekeeping for today. Let's move on to our second item on the agenda. It's Pear Pick. Now, if you remember last week, we set a Targaryen theme for Pear Pick. We had Old versus Young in Maester Aemon versus Young Griff slash Fagon, whatever you want to call him. Now, firstly, I'd like to say I'm pretty sure this is our highest amount of votes ever, 194. I guess everyone is just in the voting polling mood thanks to Davos Fingers and A Song of Madness. So that's great. We'll ride that train all the way. 194 votes. Unfortunately, not a close race. Maester Eamon, the oldies, take it. 76.3%. I'll let you do the maths. Either way, it's a beatdown. Sorry, Young Griff slash Fagan. 
just not interested in hearing what you've got to say. We want the mysteries. We want the the pure knowledge that Maester Raymond could give us. Let me take you through a few of the comments that you kind people have offered me. I'll start with at Vidakasini, our beloved patron. She says, many have said it before, but I'll say it too. I voted Eamon with my eyes closed because A, I love him so much, and B, he has so much to tell us about the past. Rhaegar, Summerhall, Egg in general, Blood Raven. Not to mention he knows a huge amount of lore and just pure world building. And may have even known of Rhaegar and Lyanna having a child. I could even think back on this child. He must think lost. And the fact that he could think back on that child, think he's lost where and John is actually in the room of him, that's just a little bit heartbreaking. And also, she makes a very good point here. Wouldn't it be nice for a minute to be in the mind of a wise one? Someone whose importance goes way beyond storytelling and history and actually touches on life of a capital L thanks to his experiences and readings. That is a, a, a very well put statement there. Uh, so yes, all that world building, all the special areas that Eamon would know that hardly anyone else would know about, plus just having a maester. We barely get time to know Crescent and he's not in his, his best state when we do see him. Sam's only on his way to becoming maester, so to be in Eamon's mind and learn all of these many, many things about the general world, that would definitely be very interesting. At T Green Grace says, very tough call, but Eamon has so much more he can reveal. Fagan would be a treat to see if the seeds of Maegor really are sprouting in there, or if he's actually a good egg. So yeah, that's interesting. We'll come back to uh, Aegon himself in a minute. At Knight2359 says, Eamon, I find young Griff less interesting as a character than as a vessel for other people, Varys, Jonkon, Ariane, all their hopes and dreams rather than himself. And we've kind of got Quentin anyway, so yeah, I guess you can draw that comparison. At J. Murray Eel said, I'd really like Eamon's POV to get a better idea of what his brother Daron was dealing with. Hearing Eamon want to see him whole again really made me rethink Daron as a character and come to see someone dealing with vision-induced trauma. And that's a good point because Eamon has a whole cask of brothers and sisters that would be very amazing to learn about from his younger years, that whole court that we... Obviously, because we haven't got uh, the next fire and blood yet, we still have many questions about. And, and Jay also said one of those sisters most likely had a relationship with Dunk, and uh, that might get us into the tough bloodline there. So always very, very interesting. The famous Aswath Readthrough account, at Aswath Readthrough, says, I love, love, love Eamon, probably my favourite Targ, but I feel he works better as a non-POV, whereas I like the idea of knowing a little bit more about what Fagan is like and seeing his rise and inevitable fall through his own eyes. So yeah, let's go on to their Aegon train a bit, because Aswath Rufu also makes the great point that we may see young Aemon if we uh, get some more Duncan Egg. So that, oh, I have to I have to calm down when that possibility comes up, because I would love that. But anyway, yes, Aegon, young Aegon, young Griff, fake Aegon, whatever you want to call him. At PatDara251, Aemon would give too much away, whereas Fagan processing his real identity parallel to John will be a great read. So he's voting for the Black Dragon. So yes, we can definitely draw a lot of John comparisons and it'll be very interesting how they can both fit into this world that seemingly only has a, a room for one. So that's going to be really good. And I've mentioned just a minute ago, but at Manners Without, the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast, they say, I feel that we are going to get so much good stuff from Duncan Egg again that of the two, I would prefer to see Fagan just because of its current events. It would be neat to see who he is on the inside instead of who we are led to believe he is. And, you know, sure, on the outside, in theory, he should be a Rob Stark. He's a perfectly made king. And yet even more in touch with the small folk compared to Rob because of his upbringing. But really, internally, he could be a crazy Ramsay person. He could just be playing the long con until his moment comes to, to reveal 
who he actually is inside. And that would be my argument for Fagan is this I'd like to see that rise and fall. There's even some discussions on this about, you know, what would it be like the moment he finds out if he's not a real Targaryen. That'd be a cool POV chapter to have from him, wouldn't it? But I digress because Maester Aemon destroyed him anyway, so who cares? Maester Aemon is our new POV character. Okay, another pair baked down. So again, thank you for getting so many votes in. Let's hope that continues with the influence from the Song of Madness. This week then, we're leaving Targs behind. Now we're going to have an uncle head-to-head. Who is the best uncle? Or rather, who do we want to see more of? We're going to have two main families, two connected families. Yes, we're going Benjamin Stark, missing, presumed dead. Maybe not, though. Sure has a lot of uh, mysteries around him. Versus Brynden, the Blackfish Tully. One of my personal favourite non-POV characters. He's still got a lot to give us. What is he going to do in the Riverlands? Is he going to join the Brotherhood Without Banners? Is he going to take Riverrun back? In the past, he could have given us a lot of very good POVs in terms of the battles and maybe that campaign in the West with Rob. But that's not for me to persuade. Go and get your votes in. That poll will be later up today. It's Uncle Off 2020. And yes, Brynden versus Benjen BB for today's pair pick. Okay, so get those votes in. Okay. So the main show then, I would simply say a lovely thank you to our patrons, our wonderful patrons for their continued support and to all of you for your sharing, your likes, your retweets, your comments, your downloads, your listens and anything else. Please do get in touch. You know the email by now, islandfacespodcast at gmail.com. Just come and say hello. Today's five chapters are very interesting because the Dornish are coming. We've come to Yunkai. John makes his big break. This chunk has bunches of big events that are eventually going to lead onto even bigger events down the road. This is where a lot of future storylines find their beginnings. And I think this is where we really start tipping into the race towards an ending where literally every chapter is some huge event or another. The pace is quickening here this week as we pass the halfway mark, as I'm sure Aziz mentioned, and we definitely get treated with today's five. A reminder, we'll begin with Tyrion 5, like I mentioned, that's the Dornish turning up. Aya 7, post-duel. The Brotherhood are back back on the job, back out saving lives and kicking ass. Brand free, Queen's Crown, and very closely connected. The most connected chapters ever, as we'll come to discuss. It's John 5, that's the big break. And finally, Daenerys 4, we come to Yunkai, and we get one of the best Daenerys chapters, in my opinion. But let's begin, shall we, with Tyrion 5. Here we go. Now that we've been having... Ariel, Hotar, Ariane, and yes, Quentin chapters for so many years, it's easy to forget what a revelation this chapter would have been at the time of publication and within the narrative, so meta and in-world. Up until now, we knew next to nothing of the Dornish, save for some Tyrion negotiations we were barely privy to. There's a whole culture, an entirely different landscape, a complete enigma within the Seven Kingdoms that's just been brewing down there in the south for three books now, and again, we, we just don't know anything about them. Consider that at this point, we probably knew more about the lands above the wall than we did Dawn. So, when completely out of the blue, and with nothing more than a throwaway line's warning, we get all of Dawnish culture and burning pride represented in one damn shining sun, Oberyn Martell. It's very hard to trump a character introduction such as this one. This is really one of the, the good introductions, especially at this point in the game. Sure, Oberyn will turn out to be more of an intense flair than anything else, but it ushers in a whole new age of A Song of Ice and Fire. The Dornish are here to stay for the next two books and the ones coming after, in whatever capacity, and we owe it to this man here. But 
before we actually get to the man himself, we have something a lot more familiar. An annoyed Tyrion. What of the dock inspection, finding some money for the court, and now being basically the door greeter, there's a sense of the Lannisters just dumping any odd job they can on Tyrion when they're too busy. Or is Tywin trying to send the same polite, impolite message to Duran Martell that Edmure got so worked up about when Lame Lothar came to Riverrun last week? Both are equally possible. The whole party that comes with Tyrion has an air of kind of afterthoughts about them. Giles, Rosby, Jalabarg, though. Not really the cream of the crop. At least Adam Marbrand is a little bit of the exception there. Today's first quote. He could see their banners flying as the riders emerged from the green of the living wood in a long dusty column. From here to the river, only bare black trees remained, a legacy of his battle. I like that the last two chapters of Tyrion's have included him having to physically visit examples or sites of the destruction of his battle and what that's left behind. It keeps that link strong because we're going to be referring to that horror a lot during his trial, especially in terms of the effect on the small folk. It keeps reminding me of the true psychological effect of being in such a horrific battle. And that'll all come out and dance, but Tyrion's soul is still surrounded by wildfire, it seems. He can't escape the, that battle. Now, some pod time, as he completes the Sigil Sporkle quiz, basically, when he runs through them all for Bronn and Tyrion. And we've actually had almost no focus on pods since his saving of Tyrion on the Bridge of Ships. This isn't the show, after all. He's not going to be the, the, the same character he is there, they will step into the spotlight a bit more in the latter half of this book and definitely in A Feast for Crows when he links up with Brienne. So it's good for us to be reminded of him here and especially seeing him kind of do, do well. It's nice. As for the sigils themselves, these many different sigils are laid out in this way to kind of double down on this, the idea that Dawn is really a subset of nobility and society that really is separate. They've got their own thing going on down there. We really haven't heard of any of these houses and certainly haven't seen these sigils just wandering around the city in the same way we might see a fossaway apple or something else. These guys are different and they are not singular. Indeed, they are more united in purpose than basically every other kingdom. At least that's the impression we're being given. Surely we must assume that Duran slash Oberyn have arranged these many different house representatives as a sign of strength and a reminder that, if things go wrong, the Lannisters would have a real, real problem on their hands. They're really showing the best that Dawn has to offer. And again, it's just that idea that there's a whole, almost a different kingdom down there, which historically it obviously was. It's just completely different, completely strong on its own. And now they're coming to make trouble. The Dornish contingent as a whole now entering the arena is a really big inclusion, not only for the future storytelling opportunities for Dawn itself, but stretching out the tinderbox that is King's Landing as a whole. We've made that comparison a few times as Tyrell versus Martell has built up a whole bunch in this chapter. And actually, it's built up more than we ever actually get to see them rub against each other. So far, anyway. Maybe that is still to come. My lord, Pod said, a little timidly. There's no litter. For such a simple line, this really changes the atmosphere of the chapter for a first-time reader, while inciting smugness for rereaders because we know it's bringing us over in all the sooner. It also keeps following this format of recent Tyrion chapters, Back in Clash, it was Tyrion surprising people and creating problems for others, but here, sooner or later in each of his chapters, something comes along to make his day worse, and here's his first problem of the day. Our introduction to how exactly the Dornish are different has to be shifted over quite quickly to allow more over in time, so the information stream comes pretty quick here in terms of sand steeds, the three different kinds of Dornish, their affinity for horseback bows, it's a very Dothraki vibe there, and even the, the different clothing that they come wearing. Finally, we get the man himself. We really are spoiled with Beric last week and Oberyn here, however different those two are. But here's a quote either way. 
cloak of pale red silk fluttered from his shoulders, and his shirt was armoured with overlapping rows of copper discs that glittered like a thousand bright new pennies as he rode. His high-gilded helm displayed a copper sun on its brow, and the round shield slung behind him bore the sun and spear of House Martel on its polished metal surface. A Martel's son, but ten years too young, Tyrion thought as he reined up. Too fit as well, and far too fierce. Though Tyrion's worries already focused on Oberyn specifically being a very formidable and dangerous problem, fierce is it's quite the word for Oberyn, Oberyn instead doubles down on these various people who make up such a more intimidating group than Tyrion's afterthoughts, as Tyrion notes himself. Plus we already get a prime example both of how the Dornish are different and how they don't quite fit with the rules and the ability that we already know, with this quote. He raised a slender hand towards a black-haired woman to the rear, beckoning her forward. And this is Elaria Sand, mine own paramour. Tyrion swallowed a groan, his paramour and bastard-born. Cersei will pitch a holy fit if he wants her at the wedding. Now I did double-check, and this is literally the first time we hear the word paramour in the series. And obviously, bastards are not a common occurrence at the King's Landing Court either. Well, they are, but <laughs> officially they're not. So we have two clear distinctions of how the Dornish operate differently, and why this is going to cause complications going forward. The fact Oberyn is telling this to Tyrion specifically is also on point. Tyrion's entire misery largely stems to the fact that he has to hide his own forbidden love unless he wants to see Shay killed or used, whereas Oberyn, who is essentially the physical opposite to Tyrion, and that draws a bit of a, a strong comparison to Jaime, can sleep with whoever he likes, whether as a paramour, or casually, or whatever. And while Tyrion cites Cersei here, He's already mentioned Joffrey being an idiot in terms of making jokes at Dornish expense earlier on in the chapter. Angry and insulted as Cersei might be, she'd at least have some slight sense about it in keeping it to herself, whereas Joffrey is just about the worst person you could ask to be tolerant and respectful of different cultures. And that, again, gives me a Dothraki connection because it reminds me of how Viserys used to act around the Dothraki. We can definitely see Joffrey fulfilling that role. Tyrion then goes into a bit of an inner monologue to give us some backstory on Oberyn Martell and we get this quote. Yet Prince Oberyn soon recovered, while Lord Yonwood's wounds festered and killed him. Afterward, men whispered that Oberyn had fought with a poisoned sword, and ever thereafter friends and foes alike called him the Red Viper. So firstly, I'm aware, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Yonwood right, and uh, other people say Ironwood, but in my head, it's Yonwood because I'm a simple fool. And I'm going to keep of that when it comes up again. But anyway, in regards to the quote itself, I firstly like the comparison of Oberyn being fighting fierce and arrogant at the same age Jamie was when he was named to the Kingsguard. But more importantly, this is a very clear hint to rereaders about Gregor Clegane's eventual demise, as well as giving hints on theories about Tywin's own decomposing. It's also just a, another slight nod to different Dornish customs because we haven't heard much of Jules to First Blood either. Tyrion's following thoughts on the resume of Oberyn is again intended to lay out how different this man is. He's like nothing we've seen before. He's half a maester. I think that's the first note we have of a highborn going to the Citadel, save for Maester Aemon. He's someone who's fought in Essos. He's bisexual. He's someone who's formed his own sellsword company. And note the first mention of the Second Sons outside of Daenerys chapter before they will actually turn up shortly later today. And he is one who is involved with poisons and arts darker still. This is a mix completely unseen before, raising the tension of his coming importance and the effect he's going to have on the city. We just don't know what he's going to do. He's got a lot of choices. As it is, instead of beginning with threatening words or boasts of dominance, Oberyn starts his own introduction with the story about visiting Castle Rock after Tyrion's birth. Even though Cersei certainly had a whale of a time at Tyrion's wedding at his and Sansa's expense, this story about her cruelty to newborn Tyrion 
is the first thing to realign his scope on the war with Cersei. For, for quite a while, he's been a bit distracted, which is obviously only going to get worse as the book goes. When Oberyn's tale ends, Tyrion is described as going cold, hinting that the anger from before is still there, and Tyrion still feels that there are debts to be repaid. Although he doesn't mention it, it may also have him rethinking the orders of Amanda Moore and where that came from. To look internally, this story speaks to Tyrion's lifelong psychological issues about being unloved through no fault of his own, how he was dealt a bad lot by the fates, how his deformity adds to all of his problems and self-hatred, and this is essentially the story of the first time he experienced that, from someone who was supposed to love him unconditionally and protect him in an, in an older sister, and instead abused him. I also wonder if this is a subtle plan of Oberyn's to see if Tyrion can be separated from the main family and used against them with this reminder of how awful they all are. As we discussed back when the Tyrells first came on the scene, Tyrion and Tywin's relationship isn't exactly a secret, so why not see if you can get an inside agent, maybe. At the very least, he achieves that going cold feeling from Tyrion, ensuring that major cracks within family Lannister widen, which will surely only help Oberyn and Doran's plans. A quick quote from this story. Elliot even made the noise that young girls make at the sight of infants, I'm sure you've heard it. The same noise they make over cute kittens and playful puppies. I believe she wanted to nurse you herself, ugly as you were. So this is just a nice add-on about Elia's personality and who she was as a person. And it's another advantage of Oberyn slash the Dornish entering the narrative. While we have plenty of people who knew Elia, we've really only heard of her frailty and fate, not her as a person herself. On top of that, it really sets how cruel that ending is when seeing her kindness compared to Cersei's evil. Elia wound up with the most brutal of endings while Cersei lived on. Not really fair, is it? P.S. Uh, just on that note, Cersei's threats to the wet nurse tell us she isn't a monster because of her terrible marriage to Robert and her other struggles. She's been a monster since birth, even if she claims her brother deserves that title. And a very minor note here, but I'll, I'll slip it in. News of the Halfman's Penny, that's the tax on the sex workers, is another hint of Tyrion's degrading relationship with the small folk. Incidentally, it's actually Tywin's idea, but do we think he paid the tax for Shay? I doubt it. Another quote. Are you hungry, my prince? I have hungered for a long time, though not for food. Pray tell me, when will the justice be served? Oh, it's our first nominee for badass line of the day. So now we get to Oberyn not only being able to play the game in terms of elegant words, but just being fierce enough to get to the point. And his following words only get us more and more pumped for what kind of trouble this man can bring. Perhaps even in the form of justice for Gregor again. And oh woe, the things we once hoped. Alas, alarm. But that's for later. At the very least, George gets us really, really interested in this new character with quotes like this. Why, if the gods were cruel, they would have made me my mother's firstborn and Duran her third. I am a bloodthirsty man, you see, and it is me must contend with now, not my patient, prudent and gouty brother. Though Tyrion does an admirable job of trying to make a defence of the city he has such a complicated relationship with, I'm more interested in Oberyn's tale of what happened with Willis Tyrell and their resulting friendship. I've always been fascinated by this connection, one of mutual respect that seems to sift through the larger bullshit of houses, specifically of most Tyrell. If we ever do come to meet Willis, I really hope we learn more about this friendship with Oberyn. And if it turns out there was more to it, politically and in secret as I've seen some theories suggest, all the better. So finally, Oberyn subtly hinted that he's coming for Tywin as the man who ordered Elia's death, as well as Gregor Gane. As happy as that should make Tyrion, it actually raises that good old family pride again, motivating him to make a subtle threat of his own. And I think as he's got to my final note in this chapter about how, unfortunately, the Tyrells and Martells could actually just get together and bring down the analysis even quicker. So 
Tyrion is definitely standing on uh, some wobbly old wood here, as if he wasn't before. But yes, that's Tyrion 5. That's the introduction of Oberyn Martell. That's our first chapter of the day. Let's get straight on to our second then. It's Aya 7. Now this chapter can be fairly jarring to a first-time reader because it opens far from the Hollow Hill and there seems to be no immediate resolution to the high drama of Aya 6 with, with the duel. Indeed, it seems like it's business as usual for the Brotherhood and we're suddenly back on the road, no different to the previous three or four Aya chapters. There's no immediate justice in regards to Sandor and Micah. There's no follow-up to Beric coming back from the dead. There's, there's no nothing, it's just, like we say, back to business. It's actually a very mixed chapter, full of what should be sweet victories marred by darkness and sadness, yet with some highlights still sneaking through at the end. But at least here at the beginning, the Hollow Hill is a fantastical memory, and we're back to the realities of war. And war it is. So far in Aya's chapters, we've seen the outcomes of warfare from both sides, with them visiting their various hiding places, or with the crow cages full of cast arcs. But we haven't actually seen the Brotherhood do any of the harrying, or fawn in the siding that they've been so famous for during the last two books. But now we're with the big guns, and we see that this is no Disney Robin Hood pulling a hood over a guard and tripping him down the stairs. This is bloody, brutal warfare. Flaming arrows flew through the morning mists, trailing pale ribbons of fire, and thudded into the wooden walls of the septuary. In fact, even the opportunity for interactions of a funny nature are minimised because this is closer to a hunt than a real battle. Arrows go flying in purely to flush out the rest of this sceptre that they've found and have their enemy peppered by yet more arrows before the battle really begins. If this was set in more modern times, it would look something like a mafia hit where the Brotherhood rock up in their car and spray their machine guns into the mummer's clubhouse. Purely the imagery of seeing all these flaming arrows go through the sky makes me think of eventually seeing the same thing in the north against the whites. Maybe some of these brothers will make it up there for the final battle, who knows? Like I say, the arrows only do so much before the battle is all chaos, but it still seems more like a slaughter than an actual battle. If we think this type of thing is what Beric and company have been doing to the Lannisters slash the Mummers for over a year, we can see why the legend have grown so wild. They are, they are effective, they seemingly come out of the shadows, and can only be described as bloodthirsty. Beric Dondarrion is everything his house's sigil makes him out to be, a quick lightning strike. And we also see a return of the flaming swords. The real one next to the trickster, or are they both real now? Are they both tricks? It frames the battle in a strange way for the reader. We've just seen Beric come back from the dead, so what danger is actually out there for him? Is he now predestined to win this scuffle? Is R'hllor fighting against the Mummers too? Whether it's god or man, the devastating effectiveness cannot be ignored. A quick quote from this battle. The blades kissed and spun and kissed again. Then the Dothraki's hair was ablaze, and a moment later he was dead. I only bring that up because well, we may be seeing some more Dothraki dying by flame come, come winds and come Daenerys finding her power again. But I digress. Another quote, slightly more important. Aya watched from the top of her horse, on the crest of the wooded ridge that overlooked the septuary, mill, brewhouse and stables, and the desolation of weeds, burnt trees and mud that surrounded them. That gives me some major Catelyn, Catelyn watching the whispering wood vibes, except Catelyn could see nothing but leaves and Aya can see all because of the desolation. Kill them all, she fought fiercely. She bit her lips so hard she tasted blood. Kill every single one. So something occurs to me on rereading this chapter. I don't think I realised how important the supposed injustice of the trial and, and Sandor getting away was for pushing Aya further along her path towards being obsessed with vengeance, and particularly violence. She certainly had the material within herself anyway, we've seen a lot of that back in Clash, but it's been rather more settled within her time during the Brotherhood. She hasn't had quite as many 
violent tendencies and that desperation for for vengeance. But the resurgence of her memories of Micah and of Sandok again, who she not only associates with that particular injustice of Micah, but also that of her father's murder, seemed to set off all her anger and desperation to get involved once again. And while vengeance for the Starks sounds like a cool idea, George has and will greatly explore why revenge does not always look so pretty, especially in the coming books. The Brotherhood themselves will be central to the walking of that dark path, but at this moment, I have still a small child, not flinching from watching what is, again, a brutal slaughter. She's almost analysing it like a child watching a sports game. She's thinking about how useful the arrows are. She's thinking how she'd enjoy it if she were out there. She's jealous of young Ned and how he gets to be out there. And again, this is a child wanting to get involved and do some brutalising herself. And we have to be sad about that. That's not a normal childhood. Equally, George never makes anything so clean cut because it's very hard to disagree with Aya's feelings or Beric's violence considering these particular victims or these particular enemies. Lannister's soldiers would be one thing, but the bloody mummers are quite another. It wasn't so long ago we had the great naming beneath the hollow hill of all those victims that died in the war. So we know how deserved this is, and we know the bloody mummers. And some of these ones here are the most despicable of the lot. So we have to be happy about it also. And he's got to my note on uh, on Beric making sure his own legend spreads, so I'll get on to my next note here. Once the battle finishes, it comes time for yet more justice talk. These particular brand of villains get no trial by combat, so they are not worthy. Their crimes are evident enough for a quick sentencing. And again, we are drawn to celebrate this end result and look upon Beric Dondarrion as a hero. He has ended a great evil, or some of it at least, in these lands, no matter how violent and what it all means for Aya. The story from the Brown Brothers, these people in the Septuary, of how the Lannisters came and not only took their food and valuables, but also essentially salted the earth simply to be cruel, is simply because of the orders of Tywin Lannister, the poster boy for sheer cruelty. They speak of their prosperity and success beforehand, only to be knocked down further and further by different groups of visitors, speaking to the ongoing ripple effect of war. It reminds us how far gone Tywin was from the normal rules of war, and we have to think we probably know the identities of some of these past visitors, and so does Arya. This also puts me in mind of the emigration of sparrows that we'll see in early feast, because we can be sure this destruction or corruption of these types of buildings, of hope and community, is being repeated all over the Riverlands. But Beric's victory over the perpetrators also reminds me that the man who started it all is soon to meet his maker too. Thank you, Tyrion. Now Aziz got to my note about kind of most important part of this chapter in a way is Beric revealing the price he's paying to be a hero. And I will read you the quote here just to give you some context. Lord Beric himself did not eat. I had never seen him eat, though from time to time he took a cup of wine. He did not seem to sleep either. His good eye would often close as if from weariness, but when you spoke to him, it would flick open again at once. And again, I, I made some notes, I think, as he's got to about what this all means for John and Melisandre and, the, and Lady Stoneheart and all this coming back to life, people... And it just sets our mind abuzz because really this is our best example of seeing one up close and getting to know what one of these kind of fire whites, some people call them, on the undead. But anyway, like I said, disease got to that, so you can always go and check that out. But either way, all of that was, that's just the physical. There are other facets to consider. And the first isn't even strictly to do with Beric. Here's another quote. A wound, said Lem Lemoncloak. A grievous wound, aye, but Forrest healed it. There's never been no better healer. Lord Beric gazed at Lem with a queer look in his good eye, and no look at all in the other, only scars and dried blood. No better healer, he agreed wearily. Lem, past time to change the watch, I think. See to it, if you'd be so good. 
it certainly makes sense that Lem has chosen for this role of the kind of unbeliever believer, whichever one, whichever way you want to look at. He's a large man. He's the gruffest. He's the most in the mould of a strong soldier. He seems to be the one most made of stone. But here it's proven he simply can't find a way to allow his mind to accept what his eyes have seen beneath the hollow hill and elsewhere. He's in denial. Of all the horrible things that Lem has had to see and will see again, he just can't wrap his head around this. It's just a bridge too far. We'll likely see some of that in the future too with other characters, but it also speaks to how isolating this must be for Beric. Imagine being so different that people can't even truly believe in you. And again, we have another really important quote from Beric here. Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle in the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry, but I could not find that castle today, nor tell you the colour of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What are my favourite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with a taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother, Forrest? There's a really sad part of the chapter, a real sad part of the book, and it's a, a famous quote that gets repeated again because we we, have, we obsess so much about what this could mean. So again, we're, we're laden with questions to point to John later on, specifically about impaired memory and what that could mean. I don't think anyone expects John to die a further five times to match Beric, but that's beside the point. The point is that for all the good he's done in the world, Beric himself has paid the price of this profound loss of self. What does it all mean if you have to lose yourself? And we can see that Aya is going to ask similar questions of herself when it comes to her time in the House of Black and White. Is it vengeance if you've lost your sense of self? Is it justice? Is it worth it? It's terrible enough to see within someone like Beric, who we actually only see for a handful of pages, so how would we deal with it if we saw the same with a POV character, Aya or John? How emotional would it be if we knew the castle and had seen the knighting or recognised the woman? What if we had to wave the slow goodbye to a person for this greater good and watch someone actually lose themselves? Crucially and importantly, Beric feels the weight of all this. He lists as many death as if they are all he has in the world. And again, it weighs on him heavily and brutally. Speaking of heavy and brutal, here's this quote. Could you bring back a man without a head? I asked. Just the once, not six times. Could you? I have no notes here. That's just damn, really. That's a, a real hard hit of a quote there from young Aya. But Forrest's answer is quite interesting. Not only is it some further backstory on Beric's revival, but it gives us some further evidence to what we discussed last week about Forrest being a far more interesting fire ladder man who had no powers before Daenerys brought magic back. Surely that can't be the case for all Valorites, or Melisandre would maybe think differently, but maybe it's the, that fact combined with something else that granted Forrest actual powers. Heck, maybe it's just that Forrest never actually cared about anything or, or anyone enough before Beric. But of course, none of that matters to Aya. She doesn't care about sources or rules or what that power means. She wants the result, one that is cruelly denied. Again, as we mentioned earlier, Aya is knocked down another rung, something she hasn't had to put up with all that much with the Brotherhood. Aya gets premier focus again when the subject of ransoms comes up, and it's a generally heartbreaking few sentences where, as with Micah, we find that a lot of past guilt is still hanging with Aya in terms of the stable boy in the Red Keep and the murders since. Even before that, she goes back to her childhood at Winterfell and the things her mother disapproved of then. It's a really difficult passage to read and analyse because on one hand, it's kind of nice that she's still able to think of such trivial things from her home life as opposed to the horror she's experienced, but on the other, that Aya could ever think she's unwanted or that any of this trivial stuff actually mattered or would keep her from being wanted 
It's heartbreaking. Imagine what Catelyn would think if she overheard her daughter thinking this. What it does do is set up questions about the relationship between Catelyn and Arya and how they certainly weren't as close as Catelyn and Sansa, which is pretty crucial for the coming connections that Arya and her mother will have in the published books and what I am definitely expecting from the unpublished. And very, very interesting, for seemingly no reason at all, we get Tom of Seven Strings singing The Reigns of Castamir. We actually hear these lyrics for the first time and obviously that's going to be quite big in a few chapters time it's kind of odd to be singing a song clearly related to Tyrion Lannister but perhaps he's doing it ironically but it's fitting it comes so soon after Beric assures Arya that she will reach Catelyn Rob where we know she won't specifically because of this song unfortunately just as Arya is getting low she receives more bad news Gendry wants to stay with the Brotherhood now in all fairness it was never discussed or agreed that Gendry was going to stick with her at River Run or anything like that it's just that he has become such a staple in her life the only staple really the idea of losing him is horrible because what else does she have until or if she's returned to her family? It's bad for Aya, but for Gendry himself, it makes superb sense. There's been plenty of build-up already with frustration over class rules, his relative comfortableness with at least being in a forge in Harrenhal, and his comments about not wanting to be part of any lord or the game or and just living an honest life. Let's hear from the man himself. At the Hollow Hill, what you said about being King Robert's men and brothers, I liked that. I liked that you gave the hound a trial. Lord Bolton just hanged folk or took their heads off, and Lord Tywin and Sir Amory were the same. I'd sooner smith for you. This is the most important part of his reasoning, and it's essentially a roundup of all we've been told about the Brotherhood. Gendry has heard the big speeches, he's seen the fairness of giving a trial, he's seen that the Brotherhood aren't a part of that game, and crucially, he's seen that if he joins, it will be because he chooses to. All of this is why it's incredibly important as a position in this world, and it's not hard to see why Gendry wants to sign up especially given the experience of his life so far. All of which leads to something that we always enjoy, a knighting. Gendry, do you swear before the eyes of gods and men to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to protect all women and children, to obey your captains, your liege lord, and your king, to fight bravely when needed, and do other tasks as are laid upon you, however hard or humble or dangerous they may be? There's something beautiful about this son of a king becoming a knight. Clearly, Gendry knows not that his blood is of someone who fought in battles and won a war, and he's not receiving a knighthood merely because of his surname. He earns one because he's a good man. He wants to make a good difference. He wants to help and protect the small folk. Men all over the Seven Kingdoms become knights, but only those who do so in the Brotherhood without banners are the ones who spend 100% of their time fulfilling the ideals they sign up for. In a series that spends so much of its time debating the idea of knighthood and whether it's a paper title, there's something wholesome about someone like Gendry becoming a knight, especially given that Sandok again, Mr. Anti-Knight, and kind of the pure opposite, will return in a moment. Remember, Gendry is a man who once helped out Aya with her bullies purely to be nice. He's helped her a lot more since, and he'll go on to do even more knightly deeds alongside another woman just as worthy of earning her spurs eventually. We should also take a quick glance at these different vows. We've already seen that the funerals have different words depending on the region. We'll later find out the same for weddings, and here we discover it is the same for knighting. Most notably is that the seven aren't included here. In fact, eyes of God makes me think of weirwood trees more than anything else. But also these vows are just a lot more to the point. You are here to protect small folk, whatever that might require of you. There's less pomp and circumstance and more highlighting that this work might be humble, which that probably wouldn't go down with some of the upper nobility or snobbish sons. And at the end of the day, you are here to protect small folk. That's your main thing. Although they still do mention the king. So I actually wonder if Beric wrote these himself while he's doing all these knightings. It's definitely possible. And as we mentioned, who better to be present at a knighting ceremony than Mr. Anti-Knight himself, Sandok again. 
Here's re reintroduction. It's one that we've all seen before in other books and films. The tall stranger coming in from a stormy night. It's part of what makes this an odd chapter. By this point, surely most first-time readers had figured we wouldn't be seeing him again so early. As it is, what other choice does Sandor really have? He has no allegiance to anyone, his winnings have been taken, and as far as hints, maybe all Sandor actually does have left is the satisfaction of picking a fight, that which he loves most of all. Though Sandor's coming back has a sense of randomness to it, Aya soon finishing her time with the Brotherhood doesn't. While happy might be a stretch, Aya's at least been comfortable on her travels with the Brotherhood, has even found some rare highlights. But they are gone now and she can only think on what she's lost. To protect her vulnerability, she even sits high on her horse so she can look down on Gendry before he can hurt her. And that must be particularly hard for him given what he said previously about the class difference. This is the most disenfranchised Aya's felt about the Brotherhood, even with the victory at the beginning of the chapter. And it makes perfect sense that we do not have to wait long for their partnership to come to an end. Now usually we take our midway break after the third chapter, but because chapters three and four are so closely connected today, we'll be doing it here. And it's only a short one. Hope you do enjoy our funky cool new halftime music here. So just two shout outs today and they're actually connected. And the first is of course, again, to A Song of Madness and to the boys at Davos Fingers. Because like I said at the beginning, it's just mesmerizing to see the fandom come out in, in pure passion, see these arguments about who their favorite character is or who they think is better or the many different criteria. I myself have been applying my daily criteria. So far I've had who the best plumber would be, who would be a better gondola driver or pilot or whatever they're called in Venice and who would do better in a rodeo. So <laughs> have a look at my replies if you wish to see the results. And other people have some of their good fun own criteria as well but there's also a really good opportunity for superb discussion and why people think this way about certain characters and it, and it brings up some old quality essays particularly Lady Gwyn from Radio Restaurants she posted her I think it's a few years old now essay on Catelyn so you know I enjoy that I've read it a long long time ago but I encourage you all to see we had this time a wonderful thread as we so often do from Eliana another other faces alum from uh, Girls Gone Canon on her love for Strong Belwas and his complexity and uh, why he should be voted for over Corin Harfand. I disagreed, but I appreciate the thread regardless. And this latest kind of thing. So if you're not involved, and I'm sure you all are, please do go and check because we've had some major highlights so far. We had, I think it was like, I don't know if it's the first ever tie, but a major tie between Rohan Weber and Corliss Valerian went into overtime. Rohan Weber got the victory, yes. There was a big storming comeback between uh, Arya and Martell. It almost came back over Catelyn Tully. Luckily, my girl Catelyn won. The correct choice was made. A big discussion on Cersei against Rhaegar. Cersei won that one. Wasn't too happy about that one, but you get my point. Always a lot to talk about and whether you want to be fun, whether you want to be analytical, whether you just want to go into anything. It goes all over the shop from favorite characters to like I say, who's the best in a rodeo. And it's only just the beginning, we've got so many more to go. So please do go out, check out the hashtag Davos Fingers. Every single day they're putting in the work. And if I can make one recommendation, just say thank you to the guys for doing this. It's a lot of work. If you have a look at their Twitter feed, I can only imagine what it actually looks like to them. Just the stuff we see from our side. But they're putting in a lot of work and it really does provide a lot to the fandom. So either just tweet or send a message or just tweet about them and say thank you for what they're doing for us. On the back of that second shout out is very connected. I'd like you to all go and have a look at, at Blood of the Pod, the Blood of the Podcast podcast. And again, another great name. But I bring them up specifically because they are the like official coverers 
podcast-wise of A Song of Madness 2020. And um, this is run by at KWDent2 and at LadyX Triple. I'm sure you will have seen those two on Twitter. I'm lucky enough to converse with them quite often myself. And not only are they contributing and, um, and voting, obviously, and talking about their choices, but like I say, they're the official coverage. And they're doing recaps on, on YouTube and on podcasts. And they're doing some really cool videos. It's very fun and also really entertaining. So again, go and check those out. They had the boys themselves on to talk about their own tournament. So that's really good. And you might know them better in doing a Feast of Crows, a Dance of Dragons reread analysis anyway. But especially for right now, they're doing all this a Song of Madness coverage. And I really encourage you to go and have a listen or have a watch because it just makes it even more fun somehow. So yes, a particular theme in today's halftime shout out about the Song of Madness because it's just so fun. I encourage you all to get involved. Right, stop the, the cool new music. Let's get back on to our chapters. We've still got three to go and we'll start here with Brand Free. This is an odd sort of chapter and it very clearly doesn't really work as a chapter without John 5 coming directly after it. There's still information and there's some wonderful imagery within but if it were left alone, people would probably definitely be asking why George included it at all, apart from maybe one key element that might save it from that fate later on, but we'll get to that. We've had chapters linked together seamlessly before, such as during Ned's fall in King's Landing or at the Battle of the Blackwater, but we won't see too many of them going forward, and it's definitely rare to see a pair alone together in just a couplet. And specifically, one that absolutely depends on having another to make it worthwhile, which we can say for Bran, not so much for John, but again, that's for later. We begin with what should be a rather beautiful place to live. A tower set out on a crystal blue lake with a little village beside it. It is still beautiful, but there's no one living there now. And we're used to abandoned villages, but normally they're down in the riverlands and they're victims of war. This one has simply been abandoned due to wilding raids, so I guess that is a kind of warfare. And because we find out that this is the gift, I suppose that can be a sign of the Nightwatch's failure to maintain a connection with the locals and hold up their side of the bargain in terms of protection. When we get the story of Alassane and her new gift, we can even start working out numbers about how quickly the Night's Watch has declined or how quickly the Wildlings have become more aggressive depending on what view you want to take. There's a kind of three-way cycle thing going on here. More aggressive Wildlings mean a larger effort needed by the Watch and also, and also less farmers to provide food for the Crows of the Night's Watch. Less food for the Crows means, simply, less Crows. Less Crows means more Wildlings. Just as easily, we can paint it as a two-way problem that the wildlings have merely taken advantage of. We're never really informed about whether this was a conscious strategy to be worse below the wall and harm the watch, or whether they just needed to because matters above the wall were getting harder. Either way, in just 142 years since Alessand gifted the gift, the Night's Watch is nearly unrecognisable after 8,000 years of seeming consistency. Hmm. Let's get to our first quote of the chapter. The reeds exchanged a look. How do you know that? asked Jojen. Have you been here before, my prince? No, old Nan told me. The Holdfast has a golden crown, see? He pointed across the lake. You could see patches of flaking gold paint up against the crenellations. Queen Alassane sat there, so they painted the Merlin's gold in her honour. I adore this exchange for two reasons. First, blessed are those who walk anywhere where Queen Alassane also walked. And yet, sure, we've gone to the Red Keep and Dragonstone, but this place is actually hers, and I do love her, as I'm sure you well know. But more to the point, in a POV where we have one maybe two characters whose whole thing is that they can see into the future and tap into the land and have access to all this secret knowledge. None of that is what gains them shelter and saves their lives later on. It's the stories of old Nan. It's just local knowledge, simple as can be, passed down and listened to. 
Not only is it a nice nod to the importance of stories, it's also a great nod to old Nan and her gift to her beloved Brandon right here. If I may slip my castle hat on for just a second, Queen's Crown is cool. Not only does it have a wonderful aesthetic like we just mentioned, that's one of the coolest defence barriers we get to see. A hidden path beneath the water, one that even if you know about, is designed to make you fall in with its zigzags and slippery stones. And that's in good weather, all the while exposing you to arrow fire with murder holes as a welcoming gift. Superb. It's ingenious stuff like this that makes me adore George's creativity. And consider this is all set up for one tower beside a small village miles from anywhere, yet they still go to these lengths. Perhaps they believe wildings can't swim. Either way, I just like some good castle talk, as you well know. It's also fitting to have this description and feeling of safety and defence when the first few paragraphs of the chapter focused on the idea that they were all finally exposed out in the wider plains of the north. While that defence is comforting, this is still an abandoned tower that they are entering with all the required shadows and cobwebs, so there's still a feeling of unease and danger about the place. Combine that with Bran soon speaking about the abandoned castles along the wall, with the frozen gates and tunnels, and re-readers can very clearly see that George is setting up the superb Nightfort chapter and the Black Gate, and giving us a mere taste of the unease that they feel at the shadows up there. And it's also just a good reminder that the Black Gate is going to be needed, because we've recently seen how John got across the wall, and that's clearly not going to work for this group. To continue with his proof of incredible Northern knowledge, and again, we must pause to point out how much more immersed in Northern culture and history Bran is than his siblings, even before he starts becoming the Three-Eyed Crow. It's just pure knowledge and interest, Bran takes a moment to remind us about these abandoned castles of the Watch. Again, it's a reminder of how far the Watch has fallen when combined with the evidence of Queen's Crown, while also dropping hints he doesn't even know about, such as when he replies to uh, Jojen's idea of opening these tunnels to get through. We shouldn't do that. Bad things might come through from the other side. We should just go to Castle Black and tell the Lord Commander to let us pass. Whilst bringing up the fact that we've recently just seen the Lord Commander die, Bran hits the nail on the head because there truly are very bad things eventually looking to come through to the other side. And first time readers might have genuinely worried Bran and co were about to leave a door open for the others if they're going to use some kind of secret door or secret gate. Just a final note on these abandoned castles and the state of the Night's Watch. Again, we've just seen Jor Mormont's great ranging finally clap into mutiny. So if the Watch is struggling to man or patrol, patrol these castles before, try doing it with nearly 300 less men in your ranks. Jojen replies, your grace, we must avoid Castle Black, just as we avoided the King's Road. There are hundreds of men there. So speaking of first-time readers and their assumptions, this line could make it quite easy to start making an argument that Jojen is purposefully keeping Bran from the watch for some nefarious purpose. Or at the very least, he might be a bad guy for keeping Bran away from John. We could forgive first-time readers for thinking that. Of course, we actually know John isn't there anyway, and while I'm fascinated to know what would have happened if Bran had turned up to Castle Black before John returns himself, we can pretty much rule them letting Bran continue above the wall out completely. But while the chapter so far has been mainly concerned with creepiness and the atmosphere of the northern north, the chapter takes an abrupt dive into true tension once Jojen spots a man heading into the village beside them. Okay, it's one guy on a horse, so not too big of an issue, but enough to get the gang to hide. Plus, we have to be concerned about Summer's safety because he's obviously been left outside the holdfast. Or perhaps we should say we have to worry about this guy's safety if Summer is around. But then that is joined by the literal atmosphere charging the emotional one as the lightning fills the sky and the day becomes black. The friends are able to keep their emotions in check whilst they eat, but the storm grows ever nearer and the tension keeps rising, rising, until we get a major moment in Bran's development. And this is the one I mentioned a moment ago, the one that saving grace of this chapter if we didn't have John next to it. I'm forced to say that reading Hodor being terrified of this storm is a very difficult 
heart-wrenching passage to read, especially when the others begin shouting at him to stop. We can't blame them, they are just children, they're scared, and the danger increases when Jojen spots newcomers, yet more newcomers. It really makes my heart bleed to see Hodor having to suffer through this. As for Jojen spotting the men, George employs a tactic we see quite a lot in this chapter, the short, sharp punch of single sentences. Men in the village. The man we saw before? Other men, armed. I saw an axe and spears as well. So now we have danger from the first man, danger from the storm, danger from Hodor not being aware of what he's doing, danger from these other armed men, increased dangers this summer, and the possibility of their once perfect hiding place being revealed. The children have a perfectly natural reaction to this, wondering about what will become of them and picturing the terrible bottleneck they'd be trapped in if the newcomers were to come their way. And it's a very real concern that translates over the page brilliantly and again heightens that tension because they really would be trapped and in very big trouble. I think that sense is even heightened by the fact that this is really the first time we've ever seen this group in danger, seeing as we didn't actually witness them in the Winterfell crypts until after the battle was done and Ramsay was gone. Even with the relief of Bran remembering that they have this hidden water path between them, the first time reader doesn't know if the newcomers know about it or not, or the fact that the children could be starved out if needs be, even if that water path protected them. And bear in mind that's the danger for the first time of perspective. Rereaders know that's John and his party down there with wildlings. So if they were to cross the causeway and get up into that tower, then I think almost everyone dies. There's almost no chance John's cover isn't blown. He will immediately try to defend Bran, I would imagine. The tensions break, and in the confined space of a broken tower, with a very noisy storm going on outside, I foresee the best possible case scenario being that John, Egret, Hodor, Mira and Jojen all die, and Bran is merely taken hostage. But even that is an outside chance. Does Stir know enough about the northern structure to probably ascertain Bran's value? Is he willing to slow down what is supposed to be a quick strike up to the wall with the transport of a child who can't walk? I say no, and I guess that all, minus Summer, perish. The most imminent problem in the chapter itself is Hodor giving them away as he becomes more and more distressed about this storm. He's now even flinging Mira away and continues to scream, and again, it's just horrible to read, it's one of the toughest in the series for me personally. And remember, we've not really seen Hodor have this kind of reaction at all so far. It all gets worse and worse until Bran is pressed by the situation to do something drastic. Here's the quote. Be quiet, Bran said in a shrill, scared voice, reaching up uselessly for Hodor's leg as he crashed past. Reaching, reaching. Hodor staggered and closed his mouth. He shook his head slowly from side to side, sank back to the floor and sat cross-legged. When the thunder boomed, he scarcely seemed to hear it. The four of them sat in the dark tower, scarce daring to breathe. It happens in a mere instant. It's not a case of Bran landing in Hodor's mind and having a nice look around. It's all over in a single blink of an eye. But I'd argue that Hodor's reaction, his sitting down and going silent about the storm he was screaming about just seconds before, is the far creepier scenario and wouldn't still raise his hairs on my arms now. It's the silence between the four, that eye in the storm, that perfectly connects with another of those single-sentence punches. Bran, what did you do? Mira whispered. As we know, across all stories of both screen and page, asking someone what they just did means something pretty damn major has gone down. Even for the first-time readers who lack the violence and horror of Varamir's prologue and dance, or Bran continue to delve further into the taboo during his dance chapters, we can tell by this change in an already charged atmosphere, in the shocked reaction of Mira and the terrible after-reaction of Hodor himself, that something bad has just happened. As Bran notes, it scared him, as it rightly should. But the immediate problems don't allow any time for a discussion or recognising what's just happened, because Jojen immediately tells them it might have been too late anyway, he might have seen someone looking up at them. 
Hence, tension raised again. Bran goes through several reactions to both this news and what's just happened with Hodor. Critically, he tells himself that he will not be afraid, and being afraid is a very natural reaction for a child who intrinsically knows they have just broken a rule, as much as Bran might be thinking about the men outside. He tries to bargain that the outsiders might be Stark Bannermen like Mr. Liddell. And finally, he retreats to the source of comfort he used at the beginning of the chapter and for most of his childhood, Old Nan's stories, by remembering the causeway and allowing the reeds to relax if only for a little while. As Jojen points out, that does not mean the danger has passed, and it does not make Bran any more comfortable with what's just happened with Hodor. So he reaches out again for a skin where he can be comfortable on multiple counts. He doesn't have to worry about being caught defenceless in the tower because he'll be out there, armed to the teeth in a natural sense and capable of looking after himself. He doesn't have to worry he's just hurt Hodor because he won't be with Hodor. I think it's very important to Bran that he get back on the horse, so to speak, so quickly here to prove to himself there's nothing wrong with warging and that the Hodor incident was some kind of freak outlier. We have this quote to finish the chapter. A man of a stick blundered by, a skin pulled up over his head to make him blind and deaf. The wolf went wide around him, behind a dripping thorn bush and beneath the bare branches of an apple tree. He could hear them talking, and there beneath the scents of rain and leaves and horse came the sharp red stench of fear. Mostly this is about Bran putting himself in an advantageous position of strength for the first time he's had to interact with enemies since his beloved home was burnt and stolen from him. This short paragraph is enough to remind us of Summer's many, many advantages. He's perfectly aware of his surroundings, whereas the men are blind and deaf by comparison. He knows that they are there, but they don't know the same about him, and at least one of them is already afraid, even if we don't yet know which. Which leads us on to just about the two most connected chapter endings and beginnings in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. So very quickly then, we dive into John 5. Interestingly, rather than just switching from Summer slash Bran's eyes to John's with a split second difference, George opts to play with the timeline a little bit by beginning the chapter before the ending of Bran's. This is the type of thing we'll become much more used to with, with Feast and Dance, but at the publication of Storm this was quite a new experience, especially for first time readers who hadn't looked up the in-depth and well-researched timelines that have come out since. You can easily get to this point without focusing on the fact that the chapters are out of order. Either way, none are so blatant as this connection between Bran 3 and John 5, so it's interesting to note. Ignoring Bran for a second, John 5 follows the same setup as John's Clash of Kings arc, where his storyline is split into two with one definitive chapter. Back then, it was the meeting of Corrin and the beginning of the mission into the Frostfangs. Now, we get the conclusion, in some ways, of that mission and John's time with the Wildlings. We have a super emotional choice that has been building all through this book, and it's about as consequential as they come. This one chapter decides the fate of the wall, thousands of wildlings, and for all we know, the future of humanity. That's to focus on the external. Internally, this is a culmination of several different emotional turmoils that have been crushing down on John for a number of months. The emotional fallout of leaving Egret, of finally choosing to leave that cave behind, won't be really available for analysis until their tragic reuniting, or lack thereof, at the Battle of the Wall and beyond into dance. Similarly, Though John makes his ultimate choice, or perhaps the choice that was never a choice at all, the effects and consequences will go forward in John's difficulty back at the wall, and of course his choices as Lord Commander. In some ways, this is merely the ending of a section of John's wilding journey, where we finally see the culmination of his inner questions about loyalty, freedom, and who he truly is. And the way we get all of that? Force John into a situation his brother had to go through, high-pressured with very little time to choose, between either doing a potentially bad thing, or suffering the consequences otherwise. This is a little different, for Bran didn't really have Morgan Hodor lined up, and John knows what his decision is, and he finally makes it. He finally finds an ask that is too much of him, 
in terms of his mission to Corin, and he takes a leap. But that is all to come, and we begin the chapter on a low setting for John, a high one for Egret, as the vast difference between them is highlighted in the most basic of ways, their view of Queen's Crown. In this, we also get to see the differences between brothers, as John is far more dismissive of Queen's Crown itself, and apparently didn't take in enough of Old Nan's stories to recognise Alessane's mark or remember the crosswalk beneath the water, again reassuring us of that point about Bran being Mr Northern knowledge in comparison to his siblings. Now that's the case at the beginning, that will change a little bit later in the chapter, but at the start, that's how John is, is presented here. Here's the first quote of the chapter. On a hill above them was another round tower, ancient and empty, thick green moss crawling up its side almost to the summit. Who built that? All the stone like that? Egret asked him. Some king? There's a couple of ironies layered within here. First is Egret talking about being a tower worthy of kings. She's a little off, as it was actually a queen who gave it its name and design. But then again, many believe a future king is currently hiding within. Second is Egret's thoughts on leaving such land, when it is actually her people doing exactly what she's doing now, that resulted in it being abandoned in the first place. But of course, more to the point is that to Egret, Queen's Crown is a human effort so magnificent she can't even buy into the fact that humans alone were responsible for it. Whereas to John, this old news is nothing. He brings up Winterfell and even the High Tower, again just showing how large the gap is between these two. In fact, John is showing that it's even worse than a simple this side of the wall to that side of the wall problem. It's also a matter of class. Plenty of people in the North or Seven Kingdoms as a whole might have seen structures like or larger than Queen's Crown, though maybe those who haven't are more frequent in the North. But John didn't just see one, he lived in it, and one far surpasses it. So it's impossible for him not to just think of a tower like this as a trivial little thing, when to Egret it is a marvel. A fitting beginning for the chapter when that chasm finally becomes too wide. And the thing is he's got to my note on John thinking back about Winterfell and all these things that he could show with the flowers and the feasts and the, the crypts for some reason. And it's clearly a bit of a, a dream world because even with the assumption that they both survive whatever they've got coming to them, John would either be beholden to his Night's Watch oaths, the very ones he's dreaming of breaking, or hunted down as an oathbreaker. In fact, John doubles down on the oathbreaking a second later when he dreams of holding a hold fast in his father's name whilst living with Egret, holding lands, taking wives. John notes that this could only have happened if he'd made very different life choices and that the chance is gone because of his vows. But we see where his heart lies, making the choice at the end of the chapter even more deep-cutting. Another quote, again from Egret. Might be after we could come back here and live in that tower, she said. Wouldn't you want that, Jon Snow? After? After. The word was a spear for us. After the war, after the conquest, after the wildlings break the wall. For all that is different between them, Egret shares Jon's denial when she also speaks about after. Again, moving past the fact of what's to come sooner rather than later, ignoring the consequences of what will happen if the wildlings were to break the wall, or rather, what should happen if the North were together and collected, in that they would all come and beat them back. I wonder if Egret and the other wildlings generally believe everything will be better when they get to the other side. Either way, Egret is ignoring large parts of reality here. She does not want to leave the cave behind, and again, that choice cuts deeper and deeper. While we're being wistful about wants going undesired, John gives us some brand new Eddard slash Benjen info with Ned's plan to settle the gift with new lords. There's the quote. It is a dream for spring though, Lord Eddard had said. Even the promise of land will not lure men north with a winter coming on. Dream of spring. Trust George to get these little hints in. Of course, we'll see this idea seep into John's own reign later, but it's just nice to get some new Ned info and show that he was always thinking about ways to improve his land and keep everyone safe.
The dreams give way to reality quickly enough, however, as an argument that has kind of been simmering between John and Egret throughout their time together really boils over, almost as if they know this is their last chance to hash it out. It's a very complex argument about the basic structure of why things are as they are in this part of the world, and it makes that chasm as wide as it's ever going to get. It's harder to settle with Egret's point of view, given her questionable arguments about it being okay to steal daughters but not wives, and her not recognising that she is admonishing running from the enemy, even as her whole people are doing the same thing from the others. Then again, it's hard not to respect her emotionally charged declaration here. You took the world and built the wall to keep the free folk out. Did we? Sometimes John forgot how wild she was, and then she would remind him. How did that happen? The gods made the earth for all men to share. Only when the kings come with their crowns and steel swords, they claimed it was all theirs. My trees, they said. You can't eat them apples. My stream, you can't fish here. My wood, you're not to hunt. My earth, my water, my castle, my daughter, keep your hands away or I'll chop them off. But maybe if you kneel to me, I'll let you have a sniff. Because we know this is a thing that invading forces do in terms of both the Andals and the First Men, and always has me thinking of the poor children and the giants, it just really, it cuts deep. John's point is easier to get on board with, mainly because it's more basic in essence. Of course the people left, because why would you stay for a life of hardship and pain if there is another option available? Critically, we can see John beginning to argue himself into the position he later takes when he expresses his hatred for wildlings such as Rattleshirt, and reminds himself that this is what he'd be subjecting the world to if he fails or abandons his mission. Then again, Egret doubles down on her stealing the world argument, with a very relatable complaint about men claiming parts of nature now belong to them exclusively because they say so, and they happen to have a bigger stick than you. Again, this is something we can apply throughout our own history and see the evilness of it, especially if you happen to live in a country that once had the greatest empire in the world because of those big sticks. Cough, cough. That's convincing enough, but she also opines how these new landowners would then create a hierarchy to make sure that not only the earth is beneath them, but also a, f a lower form of humanity too. It's hard-hitting, truthful stuff. She wraps it up with a succinct, and men can't own the land no more than they can own the sea or the sky. You neither think you do, but Mance is going to show you different. But again, John comes off with a slightly stronger point because he sticks to the situation they are actually in. Egret's not wrong, in fact she's damn right, but John is more right when he points out that none of what she said excuses people like Rattleshirt or the very worst wildlings, coming and doing what they do to mostly unarmed and innocent villagers. And we haven't even been inside Varamir's head yet, for example. I don't think he's coming to fight for the justice of a land being stolen. Unfortunately, Egret only weakens her argument when she still dismisses the idea of stealing a girl being a bad thing. It's another great look into how different and varied the wildlings are. I wonder, for example, what Egret would ever make of Gilly. John, seemingly desperate to keep the conversation focused on the here and now, changes tactics a bit, while also clearly telling us where his own mind is at. Egret, he said in a low voice, Mance cannot win this war. It's almost as if John already has one foot out the door and is desperately trying to bring Egret with him. Note that he says all of you at the end, and really seems to have begun separating his identity from his new friends. Of course, Egret is never ever going to agree with this statement because she is 110% in on Mance's plan, and while John busies himself with repeating what we've already heard a few times about the Wildlings' lack of organisation or discipline when it comes to a full battle, and he'll get to see the Wildlings both succeed and fail before this book is done, Egret is sort of done with the dancing and wants to put a line in the sand, or the snow, about who John actually is, because of course, she replies, all of us. You're mine, she whispered, mine as I'm yours, and if we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow, but first we'll live. Yes, his voice was thick, first we'll live. Here, all the turmoil returns because Jon can now pretty much recognise he is straight up lying to Egret, 
promising her matters of the heart that simply aren't true to keep himself alive in the short term and protect all the North in the long. The great struggle about him having to do something bad in order to achieve something good returns in force. He doubles down on this a bit later when he extends the feeling of betrayal out to Jarl's raiders. He names them, humanises them. He tells us how he feels being part of the group. He's been through things with this bunch of people, so it's impossible not to make some connections. And as John notes, whether by his hand first, or the hopeful eventual victory of the Night's Watch, these men, who are not so very different than he, will die for the crime, so far, of wanting freedom. His not wanting their friendship or Egret's love is the ultimate signal of his inner pain. He knows the end result, and he doesn't want the added guilt of connected relationships, even though it's pretty much already too late for that, and because, of course, he still finds himself kissing back. At the same time, John is already setting down his barriers when he notes he will never be able to shed a brother's blood. He knows there is a time limit on this thing, and sooner or later, the choice will come. As we know, it's going to be sooner, and though it won't be a brother of the Night's Watch, it'll be the same question weighing on John's soul. All of that gives way to some table setting for the Battle of the Wall, both in terms of raising the tension for John's ability to get away, but also just for the fact that there are wildlings below the wall. John clearly lays out how indefensible Castle Black is from the south. It seems to have even less defences than Craster's Keep, for example. The south just happens to be where some of the most violent warriors are, and that's with him thinking the majority of the Great Ranging might have made it back, and without knowing that fools like Janos Slint will soon arrive and mess everything up. Like he humanised the wildlings, John names all the Watchmen he knows to still be at Castle Black, most of them non-warriors, and the red slaughter that will happen if he fails. It's a nice term, John. If only there was a more specific event or ceremony you could apply the red to. While again, humanising all the wildlings and giving hints of all their individual backstories, it all adds up to one thing, increased weight upon John. Here's a quote. He had no sense of the direwolf, not even in his dreams. It made him feel as if part of himself had been cut off. Even with Egret sleeping beside him, he felt alone. He did not want to die alone. So we get just one paragraph on Ghost, but it's firstly interesting to note that the wall is cutting off any kind of connection John feels with his pale pal, but also that beneath all this weight of betrayal and loyalty and oaths, is also a very basic human element. John doesn't want to die, at least not alone, and being with Egret doesn't make him not feel alone. That's quite telling. Finally, after all the preamble, time catches up with itself as John takes his own mind picture of their surroundings and comes up with a very different description than branded with the picturesque setting of Queen's Crown on the lake. John has an opportunity to go down to the lake and reveal he did listen to Old Nan after all. He does remember the stories and the secret of the Holdfast. There's only so much time to take in the view before it's time to get down to business, because there's something more important about the difference. The place isn't empty. Jojen isn't the only one who spotted the lone man. Good old Del, definitely a relative of Delp, you can't convince me otherwise, has seen him too, so let the trouble begin. Immediately, this poor fellow that was a big worry to Brown and friends turns out to be a singular man who, for all of Jojen's theories, probably would have simply got up and left in the morning and everything would have been fine. And now he's captured. He's already being looted before he even becomes a corpse. And John is feeling enough anguish just when he thinks he's going to have to watch the blood of an innocent being spilled. He thinks back to his last orders, the orders of Corin Halfhand, and wonders yet again just how far those extend. Surely not to the expense of the people the Night's Watch are sworn to protect. Or what's the point? Unfortunately, his walking away doesn't excuse him from watching, or from his true fate. He must die, Stern the Magnar said. Do it, Crow. John is placed in a situation where he is clearly outnumbered, where there are spears already pointed at him, where his own life is being judged as much as the old man's. Hence, when Longclaw is drawn, John has a whole bunch of ethical conundrums to go through. Mainly as those orders of Corin Halfhand again. 
because John is presented with the choice to protect an innocent man or risk the death of hundreds more by allowing himself to die and making the wrong choice in front of Stir, which is correct. The fact that the old man remains silent and looks up at him like a little puppy doesn't help matters. He also argues that the old man is dead anyway, so shouldn't he be trying to save all the rest of the North by staying true to his mission? Interestingly, John's mind takes the choice to a different setting, geography. By using his own experiences, he equates that lawlessness is one thing up in the Frostfangs, but this is the North. This is the land of Winterfell, or once was anyway. This is the land that Eddard Stark protected. And as we likely could all have guessed, John makes that connection back to his father himself. Longclaw begins to feel like ice, and John remembers a beheading he once watched a long time ago, an example of justice that Eddard Stark gave his sons. Justice and duty. As we might have guessed, it's the presence of Eddard Stark, the idea that he's looking down at his son, that gives John the strength to save his own soul and refuse to kill the man, even if he knows it means death. Yet before death comes, John actually does a sneaky bit of wordplay to try and trap the wildlings within their own red tape or policies. He turned his back on the man. No, the Magnar moved closer, tall, cold and dangerous. I say yes, and I command here. You command fens, John told him, not free folk. It's some very quick thinking on John's part, and immediately points out the hole in wilding culture in terms of discipline and command structure. On the technicality, John cannot kill the man and still claim to be a free folk, because following orders he doesn't want to follow would actually be the crow thing to do. So like I say, it's very clever. Unfortunately, being called a crow wife is too far for Egret, so she steps in and ends the old man's life. Before there's a chance for him to react or analyse Egret's actions, someone else steps in, except they do it with paws. Considering we've known for the entirety of this chapter that Bran slash Summer has been prowling the shadows, ready to strike, George has done a fantastic job of making us forget that exact fact. Here's the quote. And death flapped down amongst them. We've seen direwolves attack before, Summer especially, but now it's in half-light amongst a storm, and then with a spinning torch that sends shadows everywhere. You can hardly imagine a better setup for a direwolf attack, and as we see, it really works. The savagery of Summer is so fierce, even John is taken aback and always breaks my heart that he believes it first to be Ghost and then Grey Wind for a split second. And we should also pause to remember that it isn't just Summer doing this. This is a big moment for Bran, assuming he stays in warg mode for the entire fight. He's now actively killing other humans through his wolf. But it's hard to concentrate on that now, as Summer saves John's life and creates a gap just wide enough for escape and salvation. Thus, for the one and only time in the entire series, alas, our poor Rob POVs, we see a Stark fighting in unison with a direwolf, just for a second, and it's gloriously effective, and yet ironic that they aren't actually a bonded pair. And no, I'm not counting John versus Corrin, as Ghost came in at the end for a cheeky shot that shouldn't have counted. This, this is what we were denied by not getting to see Rob battling in the Westlands. It's chaotic, it's unclear, and within a second, John is away, whilst also mentally naming a friend who gets his sword in his face just to make it extra tough. And the great break is finally complete. Jon Snow is a crow, and he's sticking to his mission. We could have expected the chapter to end there, at the point of action, but instead we get one extra scene where it hits home just how chaotic and painful the escape was. So much so that Jon didn't even feel arrows piercing him, so the addition of physical pain to the emotional is a trial that Jon must go through to reach the other side. As well as that, we actually do end on a cliffhanger, in that we provided no answers about whether it was Egret who shot him, if she was shooting at him or the horse, or what became of Summer, and by extension Bran and the others up in the holdfast. And that is John 5, that is the big break. One more left here, I know we're running long, so let's get straight to it. It is Daenerys 4. As we so often do, we find a John chapter beside a Daenerys, highlighting the two ends of the earth and the vast differences this song encompasses. Daenerys 4 has a large job on its shoulders, 
Not only must it follow what is clearly the most important John chapter of the book so far, but also match the standards of Daenerys Free, which had its own brush with loyalty and a greater good. The song goes on, sounding the same whatever end of the planet you're on. The chapter is also critical for giving us our first real look at sellsword companies and how they operate in Essos. Something is going to become more and more important as Danny's storyline goes on and into wins also once Tyrion arrives. On top of that, it quickly quells the notion that first-time readers might have assumed after reading Daenerys Free. She doesn't now wield an unstoppable killing force of three dragons as a supplement. It isn't an easy march where she stomps her way to Westeros with victory at every turn. It is still a nuanced, difficult and complex journey where Daenerys must learn the ways of war, so to speak. She will come face to face with yet more horrific enslavement and ask herself how best she can save a new people while protecting her former. And of course, it will end, somehow, with an even more important moment than the one we had back in Astapor in terms of the legend of Daenerys Targaryen. First quote of the chapter. Whitebeard had been teaching her how best to count the numbers of a foe. 5,000, she said after a moment. So speaking of learning the ways of war, I like this as a quick nod to begin with that Daenerys is taking an active interest in learning this side of things. She's not the type of person to just leave it to Jorah or Barristan or anyone else. She's actively chasing further knowledge on the subject because she knows it will help her protect her people and keep them safe. Superb leadership skills on show already. To double down on Daenerys already knowing more than these Yonkish will ever guess, she's already correctly assessing that winning a battle against the lesser numbers will not result in the overall objective of taking the city. Danny isn't concerned with instant glory, she wants the end result. Good leadership again. She can look close enough to the details to know that numbers will not tell the whole tale, that the thousand-strong cavalry of the combined sellsword companies will come at huge personal cost to her freedmen, and later on she'll note she has a mere 30-man cavalry herself. Again, the Yonkish and the sellswords will simply never expect someone like Daenerys to have this kind of knowledge on her shoulders. On top of properly analysing the battle formations, she spies the Yonkish banner of a slightly different harpy, and that's all she really needs to know. These are the same evil people she defeated in Astapor, only the details change. I think this spurs her on more than anything. She could defeat this army, but she'd only be killing slaves forced to fight, along with the sellswords, and she wouldn't be helping anyone inside the actual city. No, that won't do for the Breaker of Chains. Hence, Danny continues her hot streak by correctly guessing her dragons will be enough to tempt a parlay with the slavers and sellswords, while also being smart enough to see them all separately, instantly creating division between them and protecting her from being overwhelmed in negotiation. From there, we head into our first ever meeting with Grey Worm, the newly elected officer of the Unsullied, and their conversation is a great way to look at the changes Daenerys has made with her new allies, because again, this is not a simple case of she now has the Unsullied and can use them any way she wishes as an unstoppable force, she's trying to affect actual change. The most obvious point is the first one, she's allowed an election for representation within their own ranks. This is the first kind of agency or control any of these Unsullied have ever had, and allowing themselves to be commanded by one of their own, to have one of their own be privy to the Queen's War Council or speak with the Queen directly as we see here, provides a tremendous feeling of respect and self-worth, a feeling that they belong and are no longer just tools to be used. Perhaps more importantly is her abolishing of the daily naming process. Again, it's a sign that the old ways are over and that these men are human. As Grey Worm himself shows with his choice of name, all of this is being brilliantly effective so far. Another quote. A second encampment there close beyond her own, five times the size, sprawling and chaotic. This second camp had no ditches, no tents, no sentries, no horse lines. So, not everything is hunky-dory in Dannyland, as we find there is an unexpected result of sacking Astapor and the thousands of freedmen that followed her after the liberation. This wasn't something there was time to note in Danny Free, and though, yes, that is good Daenerys has an extra forty to 50,000 people in her retinue, we quickly learn how, no, that's not good. 
They are, they are complete opposites from the Unsullied with their organisation, as we see. They are not soldiers, and would likely be an overall negative in battle despite their high numbers. And critically, they eat the land bare around them. This is a problem Daenerys never truly solves, as we'll see here and in Marine, until such problems as the Pale Mare begin making everything even more difficult. It's an emotional and ethical problem. Drawer, as much as we hate him, isn't wrong that there, this will be a problem going forward, but Danny can't abandon people she originally set free, can she? After all, if they are free, then they're free to follow you, aren't they? It's the complicated consequences that go along with the grand saving gesture that Danny made last chapter. Not so very different from what John will experience from the worldlings, is it? Especially in terms of food. For all that, knowing what we know will become of Astapor, these people likely made the smart decision to leave. Before long, Jorah returns with the three captains of the Stormcrows, and with all due respect to Salah the Bold and Prendel Nargesen, the largest point of interest here is the introduction of Dario Naharis. We're obviously going to have a lot to say about him going forward in later chapters and books, but right here it's worth knowing that he shares some characteristics with that great gaggle of freedmen. On the surface, it's a good thing Daenerys finds a man she can willingly love after all the abuses she has suffered, but at the same time, he will present many problems that she may have to choose to leave behind in favour of her rule as queen, but that's for later. Setting aside the clues we get of Prendel and Salor each getting a mere clause of physical description, in comparison to Dario's five odd lines, we meet a new power structure in our first interaction with a sellsword company with three equal captains, and it's interesting to see how they work together. Here's a quote. 500 of your Stormcrows against 10,000 of my Unsullied, said Danny. I am only a young girl, and do not understand the ways of war, yet these odds seem poor to me. So this is the first of several repeats of this line where Danny successfully plays to the prejudices and assumptions of the men who visit her, enabling her negotiations to take place from a setting of hidden power. Another quote. Woman, she chuckled, is that meant to insult me? I would return the slap if I took you for a man. Danny met his stare. I am Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, the Unburnt, Mother of Dragons, Khaleesi to Drogo's Riders, and Queen of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. Clearly, the badass line of the day played the jingle, Patrick. Though the conversation is short and only Prendel takes part, Danny runs rings around the opposition in her first meeting of the day. She sowed seeds of discord when, she, when suggesting the second sons may change sides. She offers very generous terms in regards to the Stormcrows keeping their Yonkish fee plus extra plunder, and she weakens the alliance by pointing out the state of the Yonkish soldiers. Soldiers, all right. That's two reasons to worry, one reason to hope and get in regards to switching side. Perhaps a third when she mentions no quarter will be given after the battle begins. As a cherry on top, Danny turns so that her braid tinkles. And we all know the message that means. I have won before, and I will do again. And what's brilliant is, Prendon Algezen, who you'd think would at least be fairly experienced in these type of negotiations, has absolutely no retort other than repeatedly pointing out Daenerys as a woman. Indeed, the only other thing he points out with any conviction is that the second sons are nothing. As in, the side he is fighting on, as a third of them who are nothing. He's literally making Daenerys' argument for her. It is a complete beatdown in every sense, and I love her for it. But from there, we get Miro of the Second Sons as her next meeting, and he is quite different. He comes alone and wastes no time in proving himself one of the most despicable, sickness-inducing people in all of Song of Ice and Fire. But does this knock Danny off her game? Not at all. In fact, she keeps getting yet more badass lines for herself, and shame on the show for giving Jorah the following. The second sons have faced worse odds and won. The second sons have faced worse odds and run. Of course, in the end, it comes down to the same issue. Both household companies look down on Daenerys because of her sex. Prendel just doesn't think she's worth listening to, while Miro believes she should be nothing more than a sex toy. Danny changes her tactics slightly the second time. While she offers the same basic terms of payment and plunder, 
Although note that this time she suggests the second son's just knee first, probably because she wants even less association with Mira than the other three. Instead of trying to provoke fear, she aims for a little bribery of wagons of wine, and as we'll discover later, there is an underhanded element in that too. The third meeting comes not with a handful of men, but 50 as the opulence of Yunkai is put on full display. Coincidentally, it now occurs to me how similar this chapter of three meetings is to Tyrion's own chapter of threes back in early Clash of Kings, especially in regards to very similar promises being made over and over again. Here's a quote about the actual envoy we get to meet. The man on the white camel named himself Grazdan Moeraz. Lean and hard, he had a white smile such as Krasnys of war until Drogon burned off his face. His hair was drawn up in a unicorn's horn that jutted from his brow, and his tokar was fringed with gold mirish lace. As of earlier on, the first thing Danny does is draw comparisons to those she just met in Astapor. His name is Grasden, for Pete's sake, to start. But also, she notes he has the same smile that Krasnys had. They wear the fringed tokars, their hair is well oiled. Again, these are just slavers with different faces to her, nothing more. While Grasdan puts on a face of strength at the beginning, I think most of the fandom would agree his attempted bribe with Daenerys comes from a place of fear. The Yunkai know that, at the very least, an attack of this magnitude would be costly even if they did win. They do not want to risk such, and it's easier just to pay the trouble to go away. But Danny correctly points out there's little motivation in that when she could just take all of the gold. Thus, there's no bartering as there was with the Cellsword, no subtlety. It's all power with her ultimatum. Daenerys is straightforward with what she wants in terms of the slave freeing, and in terms of the consequences if she is disobeyed. In fact, she gives a little example when she says Dracaris again. It touched the drape of Grasdan's tokar, and the silk caught in half a heartbeat. Golden marks spilled across the carpets as the envoy stumbled over the chest, shouting curses and beating at his arm until Whitebeard flung a flagon of water over him to douse the flames. We surely all love Dracaris making a return so quickly, but I think the scattering of the marks is meant to symbolise how little this money means to Daenerys. After all, if she were to take it, She'd literally be being paid to allow slavery to continue. She'd be as big a part of a problem as any of them. So that's not, not going to happen, is it? Which leads us to the second great Daenerys trick in as, in as many chapters, one that blows everything else we've talked about so far out of the water in terms of her true knowledge of the ways of war. Yes, Khaleesi, said Rakharo. Time for what? To mount our attack. Sir Jorah Mormont scowled. You told the sellswords that I wanted their answers on the morrow. I made no promises about tonight. The storm crows will be arguing about my offer. The second sons will be drunk on the wine I gave Miro, and the Yunkai will believe they have three days. We will take them under cover of this darkness. Trust Jorah to be the one slow on the uptake. I love this move so much, and though I have seen members of the fandom accuse Daenerys of acting in bad faith here, I question if there is such a thing as bad faith when dealing with actual slavers. They are bad, all of them, and Danny is going to use that against them. She has thought of three distinct and individual ways to clear her path, and the path to freedom for thousands. Not content with that, she goes on to lay the specific commands of the attack, leading to this exchange. She smiled. To be sure, I am only a young girl and know little of war. What do you think, my lords? I think you are Rhaegar Targaryen's sister, Sir Jorah said with a rueful half-smile. I said Aston Whitebeard, and a queen as well. As well as probably being the top compliment Danny would ever want to hear, it also seems to be the time when Barristan really makes up his mind about her, and it's just genuinely brilliant writing from George, of course. But if you thought we would get out of this chapter with a perfectly worked plan, and without a full introduction to Daria Naharis, you were wrong. Luckily, it turns out the plan is actually improved upon. Here's a quote. What do Prendal Nargesin and Salo say of this? Little. Dario upended the sack, and the heads of Salo the Bold and Prendal Nargesin spilled out upon her carpets. My gifts to the Dragon Queen. Viserion sniffed the blood leaking from Prendal's neck, and let loose a gout of flame that took the dead man full in the face, blackening and blistering his bloodless cheeks. 
So as he said, Zario needed to make an impression, and this is certainly it. Whilst we get to see the fluid loyalties of Sellswords for the first time, we also learn much of Dario himself. And isn't it fitting that Danny specifically compares his looks and physique to Jorah, the most recent man to bull his way into her sexual atmosphere, although without her consent we should not forget. I also find it interesting that Viserion gets so much of the focus in this chapter. Normally it's Drogon who is singled out, or the other two are asleep or generally more peaceful. But now it's Viserion who's getting more of the centre stage. Is that because it's made so blindingly obvious how terrible Viserys would have been in this situation if he had lived, or Daenerys is absolutely killing it, perhaps? The end result is Daenerys gambling her well-made plan on the promises and newly sworn oaths of Dario, something Jorah greatly dislikes. While Danny makes a solid point that, hey, this, this guy just killed two of his fellow captains to prove himself, we'd also be remiss if we didn't point out that Jorah does have a point, and that Dario's blue eyes did at least play a part in Danny's critical trusting of him. Of course, that opens up an old argument between Bear and Dragon, and Danny has finally had enough of it. You have been a better friend to me than any I have known, a better brother than Viserys ever was. You are the first of my Queen's Guard, the commander of my army, my most valued counsellor, my good right hand. I honour and respect and cherish you. But I do not desire you, Jorah Mormont, and I am weary of your trying to push every other man in the world away from me, so I must needs rely on you and you alone. It will not serve, and it will not make me love you any better. Boom. Though he may well have a point, Daenerys is completely correct in her assessment that Jorah does try to push away any other man in order to keep himself close. He talks condescendingly to her in this chapter, which is an especially boneheaded move considering all the political and military acumen she's just put on display throughout the chapter. And really, she just cuts right down to the bone of the major topic. Jorah puts his desire first. We can see in his reaction that she strikes a major nerve, and knowing what we know of Jorah, it's hard not to applaud that. Luckily, the dragons cheer Danny up after, especially when she notes that they are growing. We have one more factor before the chapter ends, and it's some more Rhaegar story time with Barristan. This time around, it's a bit more on Rhaegar's true nature, on his love of the half of over jousting or fighting, at a time when Danny probably wanted to hear more about the warrior side, considering how she has spent her day and the earlier compliment that Jorah paid her. There's a quote. He broke twelve lances against Sir Arthur Dane that day. Was he the champion then? No, Your Grace, that honour went to another knight of the King's Guard, who unhorsed Prince Rhaegar on the final tilt. We must also adore the nod of Barristan talking about himself and not noting it in this exchange. But after that comes our third retelling of the story of the tourney at Harrenhal, our third in this book alone. So George is really hammering down its, on its importance. But that's a tale we've heard before, and things get much more interesting when Barry starts telling of Summerhall, of which we've heard so little. There's also little clues that I think we can all agree are going to be referred back to when we get more of the series. Clues of songs, of being alone at Summerhall, that give us the slightest whispers about the secrets only Rhaegar knew. But there's also a sense of Barry getting caught up in his own story, so much so that he probably would have let slip who he truly was, were he not interrupted by news of battle and victory. Here's a quote as we reach the ending here. The next day they marched the last three leagues to Yunkai. The city was built of yellow bricks instead of red. Elsewise, it was Astapor all over again, with the same crumbling walls and high-step pyramids, and a great harpy mounted above its gates. So as we've been noting all through the chapter, Danny draws constant comparisons to Astapor, so she can relate the levels of evil, and tell herself this is all justified and deserved. And she's not wrong. But finally, we reach the critical instant, with a quote here. Mother, they sang from a hundred throats, a thousand, ten thousand. Mother, they sang, their fingers brushing her legs as she flew by. Mother, mother, mother. And here the crescendo, where an entire city of people begin calling out to Daenerys as their mother, their salvation, their god. Considering she has been thinking on her inability to have children earlier on in the chapter, 
and held House Dalgaria in need of a legacy, this is perfectly placed and instantly cements itself as what Danny is supposed to do. This is what she lives for. Truly, we see the birth of her Messiah figure yet again, as her legend reaches new levels and changes countless, countless lives in a way she could only begin to dream of. If ever we were so foolish as to doubt Danny's skill, knowledge or heart, this might be the very best chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire to prove otherwise, and it may well be one of my personal favourites. And there we close Daenerys 4 and part 9 of A Storm of Swords, Scraps and Scrolls, slash Valoridis. I will not keep you much longer. I think that's long enough for today, isn't it? That's our five chapters done. We will be back with five next week. A reminder, there's some extra episodes coming up, so just keep an eye on your feed just in case. Do go and check out The Song of Madness and everything we mentioned at the halfway point. Thank you to our patrons and to all of you for listening. And if you wish, do vote and comment on which uncle you would like to have as a POV character. Benjamin Stark or Brynden Lovelackfish Tully? I know my choice, but what's yours? Either way, we will be back next week. So thank you everyone for coming to the aisle and we'll see you again soon.